Welcome to the special presentation of St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, Catechesis from the Cathedral. Join Father Adam Streitenberger on a tour of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In this episode, Father Adam covers the 7th, 8th, and 10th Commandments, paragraphs 2401 to 2513 and 2533 to 2557. Here's Father Streitenberger. Enjoy. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful. Grant us in the same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in his consolation. Through the same Christ, our Lord, amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, today we proceed, we continue with uh, part three of the Catechism, which is entitled Life in Christ, which you might say is the morality section of the, the morality part of the Catechism. We've been going through the Ten Commandments, um, just as with the other parts of the Catechism, there's sort of the key thing that kind of fleshes out the principles. We saw that in the creed in the first part, the sa seven sacraments in the second part, the Ten Commandments here in the third part. We begin with the seventh, we're at the seventh commandment today, which begins on paragraph 2401, 2401. So the seventh commandment, we are reminded, says, you shall not steal. You shall not steal. That's from Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, and Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 19. The Catechism reminds us that, um, though without using the word dignity, this commandment kind of protects the dignity of earthly goods and our care of them and the fruits of men's labor. It also, this, cat, this commandment helps us to balance two important things, two important truths, which were um, touched upon in the social um, teaching of the church section. So that I think that was chapter two of this part. So all of the commandments kind of flesh out for us how to live these principles. And this commandment and the eighth commandment are going to help us to live, um, live out these principles of social, of social justice um, or social teaching. And so there are two points that are really balanced. And that is, first of all, what we call the universal destination of goods. And the second principle is the right to private property. So there's a balance the universal destination of goods, which we'll define here in a second, and then also the right to private property. So this commandment really helps us to balance those. And that, so therefore, when we talk about justice, when in its strict sense, justice means rendering to others their due. And so what we're, we're doing is, by observing this commandment, is rendering um, the due respect, the justice owed, to all by means of the universal destination of goods and to each by means of the right to private property. So the catechism first wants to define or at least to explain this balance. 
and that's 2402 to 2406. Um, so in regards to this universal destination of common goods, what do we mean by this? Well, the Catechism tells us that from the beginning, um, God has entrusted all of the earth, all of the resources, um, to the common stewardship of the human race, to take care of these things, to master these things, to enjoy their fruits. In, in simple terms, the, the goods of creation are destined for the whole human race. They're not the exclusive property of a small class. Um, the appropriation of the property is legitimate for guaranteeing the freedom and dignity of the persons and for helping each of them to meet their basic needs. This, um, this principle is also really closely connected to another principle which we call the preferential option for the poor. And in this seventh commandment there is at the very end that it, it, the catechism talks about charity to the poor. Um, but this preferential option to the poor, the idea that all of us are poor and have inherited the wealth of the world, the resources of the world, and that everyone deserves their share of that in order to fulfill their basic basic needs and requirements. Um, so this is this is a very important point. Um, it's, you know, I think it's ingrained in our minds when we talk about the story of creation of Adam and Eve, the story of Noah, um, the story of Cain and Abel, all of these, you know, the Genesis themes, um, is the idea that the whole world has been given to the whole human race to share, and that all of these, um, all of these things are for our common, our common good. But this is... Um, the Catechism then also presents the second principle, which has to balance with the first, and that is the right to private property. So there is this right to private property. The property might be acquired or received in a just way. It does not do away with the original gift of the earth to the whole humankind. This, the universal destination of goods remains primordial. Um, even if the promotion of the common good re requires respect to the right to private property and its exercise. So even though everything has been given to the whole human race, through various ways and various developments, chief among those is the work and labor of individual people, this, uh, the wealth, the universal goods, has been divided up among individuals, among people, what we call private property. Um, and so there's a balance. On the one hand is, yes, everything belongs in common to the whole human race, but also um, all of these goods are also divided up by private property as well. And so there has to be this sort of dual respect for these things, a balance for these things. And, you know, other principles, as I mentioned, like the preferential option to the poor, kind of um, inform this balance. They help us to live this balance. Um, 
The right to private property is also connected to the common good um, in that there is this, um, it kind of ensures um, sort of a harmonious um, distribution of these universal goods. The Catechism goes on, there's a certain responsibility because even that private property is in a sense part of this universal property. There's a certain responsibility which property owners have to have. It makes its holders, the ownership of property makes its holders a steward of providence, a steward of this gift, with the task of making it fruitful and communicating its benefits to others. First of all, to one's own family. And that's, you know, part of this living of this preferential option to the poor is the first poor person is ourselves and our, our family. You know, we have to provide for our basic needs. We're also um, bound by a certain simplicity to those who hold goods for use and consumption should use them with moderation, reserving the better part for guests, for the sick and the poor. This is, it's again, it's, it, although it hasn't ev evoked this principle of um, preferential option for the poor, it's there. You know, the idea that property owners um, should use their property for the disposal of the support of, of those more in need. And then political authority, um, again, you know, with all of these commandments, there's an application to the individual and an application to society. Political authority has a responsibility to, um, to ensure this balance. Um, both the respect of individual pr of private property ownership, but also the the greater common good. Um, the Catechism talks about temperance and solidarity. Um, so the principle of solidarity and the virtue of temperance as connected to this. Also the virtue of justice. Um, and this is all the respect for persons in their good. So. The first, what we might say, violation of this commandment um, is what we call theft. Theft. Um, and it's defined for us. Theft is the usurping of another's property against the reasonable will of the owner. There is no con theft if consent can be presumed or if refusal is contrary to reason and the universal destination of goods. Um, I don't know if I've ever said this, but morality is probably my least favorite part of theology, and, and this whole, um, whole section of the catechism is probably my least favorite part because I don't, you know, everyone throws up particular ethical um, situations. You know, like, if you're starving, can you steal a loaf of bread? Well, all of those ethical situations that people throw up all the time um, are in some ways, I find them ridiculous because they all hinge upon how you define words. And that's why this section of the catechism is so important because you need to define words. So first of all, 
if if consent can be reasonably pre presumed or if the refusal to give something is contrary to reason or the universal destination of goods, then it's not really theft. So what Robin Hood did to feed the poor was not really theft. It was, you know, it, these people had uh, had a certain right to these goods because they were starving and in need. So it's not really, you're not really stealing, it's not theft of a loaf of bread if you're starving or if your family's starving. The um, catechism proceeds um, other kind of violations of this. Um, so, for instance, it you know we can't just rely on civil law because there may be situations that civil law permits that are in fact theft. So, for instance, the deliberate retention of goods lent or of objects lost. Um, business fraud, paying unjust wages, forcing up prices by taking advantage of the ignorance or hardships of another. Those things in most systems are legal. Um, you know, so for instance, if, if someone doesn't claim something for, you know, or if you've, if you've you know, squatting rights. Some, some. In fact, the state of Ohio permits squatting rights. So, if you have lived on someone's land for 20 years and they haven't um, stated their claim or restated their claim to that in the state of Ohio, you can have, you can take ownership of that. Um, I know that because I'm from Southern Ohio, and squatting is is quite frequently done. Um, one time when I was a pastor, there was um, a neighbor who was trying to invoke squatting rights on our cemetery, and I had to um, to deal with them um, in a somewhat aggressive way. But anyway, that's a whole other story. We continue. Um, other violations of this are speculation, in which one contrives to manipulate the price of goods artificially in order to gain an advantage to the detriment of others. Corruption, especially when it comes to judgment. Appropriation and use for private purposes of the common goods of an enterprise. Work poorly done, tax evasion, forgery of taxes and invoices, excessive expenses and waste, and the willful damaging of private or public property. So all of these are various violations. Some of those are legal in in some society, you know, in some some countries, um, or are not illegal. We should say. Um, in addition, um, there's also contractual obligations. You know, all contracts must be agreed upon and executed in good faith. Um, and this sort of connects to um, the next, the eighth commandment on lying, and it, as it did with the the first, com the, the 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 name, the the second commandment, um, in regards to promises. That if you make a promise, you have to keep keep your promises, especially if it's a solemn promise. Um, then the catechism brings up this phrase, commutative commutative justice, commutative justice. Um, which 
regulates the exchange between persons and between institutions in accordance with a strict respect for their rights. So, justice, we know, means what we owe to another, respecting what we owe to another. Commutative justice means what an individual owes to the institution that they belong to or work for and what that institution also owes to the individual members of it or workers of it. Um, there's also some more um, language, legal, legal justice, which concerns um, the fairness uh, or what citizens owe in fairness to the community and vice versa. And then also distributive justice, which regulates what the community owes to its citizens. Um, so what's interesting with this, um, this commandment and the next commandment, you know, so all the commandments are unique, not just in the objects of the acts that they deal with, but if you remember the fourth commandment, which deals with honoring your parents, first of all, is not negative. It just says honor. And then it also includes a reward. And that's very interesting, and, and you know, we can speculate on why, but part of that is, is because of how important obedience is, not just in our relationship to God, but also in the well-being of loving neighbor, too. Um, certainly, we emphasize a lot the fifth and the sixth commandments, you know, we saw in the Sixth Commandments that there's really no, there's no parvity of matter, that any violation of the Sixth Commandment is pretty much grave matter. Um, you know, we saw some uniqueness in the Fifth Commandments, especially like abortion, that abortion is the, the only commandment, you know, the only sin pointed out in the, in the um, catechism that has an automatic excommunication connected to it. Well, we might think that we can neglect the seventh and the eighth commandments, but they're very important and unique. And in fact, um, most of the prophetic liturgy, um, literature, the literature of the Old Testament and the prophets, deal with the seventh and the eighth commandments, with, with respecting the property of others, especially the poor and the widow and the orphan and the foreigner and the alien. Um, and then also being honest, you know, and um, with what you say. Um, but what's also interesting is with both of these, the seventh and the eighth commandments, connected to them is the obligation of reparation. So when we violate these commandments, there's an obligation of rep that we have to repair the damage. We have to, if we've stolen something, we should try to repay it. If we've damaged someone's reputation or if we've, stated a, a lie or an error, we should correct ourselves and, um, or, you know, rebuild this person's reputation. So I think we become um, fixated on the fifth and the sixth commandments, which are, you know, very important. But we also forget that the seventh and the eighth are, I mean, they're re-echoed throughout the, the prophetic literature of the Old Testament. And and, and even in the letters of, of James, the letters of James, James especially hits upon a lot of these themes. So we should keep that in mind that that's sort of the uniqueness. So this idea of repar repar reparation or restitution is required um, 
and and Zacchaeus in that encounter which the Lord has with Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19 verses 8. Um, you know, Zacchaeus in encountering Jesus Christ and in converting says that he will repay everything that he's defrauded. You know, this idea of the catechism also hits upon games of chance, which it says it's morally legitimate. Those are they're not contrary to justice, unless unless um, it keeps someone um, from providing for the needs of others. So, for instance, it's if you know a parent gambles away all their income and can't take care of their children or their family, and then also unfair wages or cheating at games also constitute grave matter. Um, and then the, the, cate the catechism also places enslavement of human beings under this, under this particular commandment. Um, especially, not just in the sense of what we would kind of classically or historically think of slavery, which, also, which has some fifth commandment connections to it too but more in the sense of an economic slavery um, so selfish or ideological commercial or totalitarian means you know so you know I think we think of sharecroppers for instance who really could were not by the system were excluded from owning their own property and basically were were slaves I mean, they were bound by a contract. They were barely paid. Um, you know, they could barely cover their supplies. They were essentially kept in an economic slavery. And those, I mean, that's in America up until really, I mean, there's probably still people stuck in that system in America. Um, or even perhaps migrant farmers, you know, is another that might be the new kind of phrase that we use for those. So those kind of things are still out there. Um, then the catechism talks about this commandment also binds us to a respect for the integrity of creation. Of course, because of the universal um, destination of goods, the idea is, is, I mean, it's already implicit in there. So we, you know, when we talk about the church's ecological teaching, especially Pope Francis has put out, in um, Laudato Si and in the Amazonian document, um, this stuff isn't just out of nowhere. It's it's rooted in that you know in that social teaching of the church, the universal destination of goods, which again is reflected in Genesis, but also in the in the writings of the prophets in the Old Testaments. Um, so in that same way, we have a responsibility to take care of creation. Um, animals, plants, inanimate beings, all of these different resources, so that generations to come may still use them. It talks about animals and that men owe them kindness. It's interesting, though, it, it talks about this. Um, it is legitimate to use animals for food and clothing. They may be domesticated to help man. Medical and scientific experimentations on animals are morally acceptable um, if it remains within reasonable limits and contributes to the caring and the saving of human lives. Um, there, was a, there was an interesting little point here. Ah, here it is in 2418. 
it is contrary to human dignity to cause animals to suffer or die needlessly. Interesting point that, you know, the sort of, um, you know, the suffering or dying of animals needlessly is, is actually more contrary to human dignity. Um, the catechism um, doesn't really explain that so much, but, um, you know, it, it is an interesting little point. The catechism does not explain how it's a violation of human dignity rather than the dignity of animals. Um, and in fact, it doesn't really necessarily, other than animals being a part of this, the, the common good, this destination of the common goods and resources, um, there's no dignity to it inherent, it seems, seems to suggest. Um, but, but I think one could, you know, one can reasonably disagree on that, on that point. Um, but another point, which actually Pope Francis has, has brought up, is it is likewise unworthy to spend money on animals that should, as a priority, go to the relief of human misery. Pope Francis has mentioned several times, you know, that there are dogs and cats in Western society that are fed better than humans in Western society. Um, so this idea that, um, you know, or, you know, I, I know of animals who have, ha who have had um, larger medical bills than I have ever had in my life, you know, and, and that certainly someone without insurance could not reasonably have, you know. Um, so there is, and that's probably why um, there's a, you know, the way that we treat animals is actually an assault on human dignity more so than on the dignity of the animals because if if only we treated humans that well or if you know if if you're mean to dogs and cats you're probably mean to human beings is is the point i think the catechism is driving at um then the church, the catechism talks about the social doctrine of the church we've talked about that that the church really has this concern for the temporal aspects of the common good. Um, and then there are, there are a couple points, um, I would say four points, that the church's social teaching um, wants to reflect. First of all, that any system, any system in which social relationships are determined entirely by economic factors is contrary to the nature of the human person and his acts. So if we reduce if we reduce what it means to be human to economic factors, then there's a problem. Um, second is any the a theory that makes profit the exclusive norm and ultimate end of economic activity is morally unacceptable. So that would be kind of um, absolute radical capitalism. Um, profit for the sake of profit. Um, then also, no, th third, a system that subordinates the basic rights of the individuals to a groups uh, or groups to the collective organization of production. So this collectivism. 
especially if it's connected to atheism. Um, and then finally, um, the church has rejected explicitly totalitarian and atheistic ideologies associated in modern times with communism or socialism. You know, the, the problem is, is if all we read is Marx and Marxist literature, then all we do is view the world and the human person from economic from an economic perspective. And then, even though we know we may not be economists or business owners or, you know, whatever, um, we then apply that to other aspects. So then, if you remember, under the first commandment, we talked about atheism, and there are various forms of atheism, materialist atheism, this sort of humanism, atheistic humanism, where basically the human person is all the, you know, the only intelligence in the universe. Uh, but then the last one was this sort of liberation atheism, the idea that when we reduce the human person to economic things or to classes or to races or to whatever it might be, and then we look at the inequality or rightly or wrong, you know, either correctly or incorrectly perceived inequalities, when we reduce the human person just to those things, um, we kind of lose the face of God in the whole picture. And um, so I guess the, the key is that we, um, even though economics are important and this this particular commandment, the seventh commandment, is is, is Upholding that, um, nonetheless, we need to um, keep in mind that it's not the end all. Um, then the Catechism in 24 through 20, um, 2436, 2426 to 2436, in those 10 paragraphs, it talks about the connection of economic activity and social justice. Um, and at the heart is the dignity of human work that it proceeds directly from persons created in the image of God and called to prolong the work of creation. So part of our dignity and part of our being in the image and likeness of God is that we work. And work is a duty that we have. Um, however, work is for man, not man for work. Um, that work is there to help us to um, exercise and fulfill our potential. Um, in the economic life, there are different interests and that these different interests must be um, peacefully negotiated and um, with due respects to all. Um, and that might be the, those who are responsible for the business enterprise, including the owners, representatives of the wage earners, including trade unions, and public authorities. So it's really a um, there's a certain civility which is called for. The uh, state has a duty to respect and to uphold um, the dignity and rights of workers and of labor. Um, those responsible for business enterprises, so the owners, they have a certain res um, you know in a in a sense they have an obligation to consider the goods the good of persons and not only the increase of profits. Profits are necessary, however, 
they make possible the investment that ensures the future of the business and the guarantee of employment. The, this commandment also uh, binds us to respect access to employment for all peoples without discrimination to men and women, healthy and disabled, natives and immigrants. And also the importance of the just wage. A remuneration or a payment should guarantee that the person has the opportunity to provide a digni dignified livelihood for himself and his family. The catechism upholds the right to a strike if that's necessary um, for proportionate reasons and benefits. And then also um, that it is unjust not to pay the social security contributions required by legitimate authority. And that unemployment um, wounds the victim's dignity. The catechism moves on to justice and solidarity among the nations that really, um, you know, the universal destination of goods applies also to, the, to, to all nations. So this sort of radical colonialism or sort of um, stripping down of third world countries and exporting all the resources to the first world need to, to really be um, looked at seriously. Um, and that we really want this full development of human society. Um, it's interesting, the catechism makes this point. Um, you know, we, we want the bishops to speak out when we want the bishops to speak out, but then we don't want them to speak out when we don't want them to speak out. And the catechism says, it is not the role of the pastors of the church to intervene directly in the political structuring and organization of social life. This task is part of the vocation of the lay faithful acting on their own initiative with their fellow citizens. So it is the job of the pastors to teach these principles. It's the job of the laity to kind of build them into the system. And then the catechism ends with a, a real need for a love for the poor. And it's there that it, um, it talks about... Um, First of all, this real love for the poor is incompatible with immoderate love of riches and their selfish use. Second, and this is sort of a drum I've been beating on for a while, hence those who are oppressed by a poverty are the object of a preferential love on the part of the church which since her origin and in spite of the failings of many of her members has not ceased to work for their relief, defense, and liberation. So we talk about this preferential love for the poor or preferential option for the poor. Now we're going to flip to the 10th commandment which is traditionally connected to the 7th commandment. So the 7th commandment was thou shalt not steal the Tenth Commandment is, you shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his manservant, or his maidservant, or his ox, or his ass, or anything that is your neighbor's. That's Exodus 20, 17, Deuteronomy 5, 21. Um, 
And just as the ninth commandment kind of talked to us about um, the uh, passions and, and the, the notion of desire, concupiscent desire, um, this also talks about our sensitive appetite, our sensitive appetite. Um, so what is a sensitive appetite? It leads us to desire pleasant things we do not have. So this 10th commandment forbids, first of all, greed, the desire, which we might define as the desire to amass earthly goods without limit. Number two, it forbids avarice, which is really this passion for riches and power. And then third, it, it forbids the desire to commit injustice by harming our neighbor in his temporal goods. So there's one is this, in general, greed, which is a desire for just accumulating more and more and more goods without limit. The second, avarice, is about um, a passion for riches and their attendant power. Um, so it, it's more maybe even the, the lifestyle or the identity that comes from these things. And then the last one, which... Um, is not named by any special word. It would have been nice if they gave us a special little word for it to sum it up. But it's this idea to commit injustice um, by harming our neighbor in the temporal goods. Um, it, is, um, it is not a violation, the Catechism says, it's not a violation of this commandment to desire to obtain things that belongs to one's neighbor provided that is done by just means. So, for instance, you know, maybe um, your neighbor has this really nice piece of land that goes down along the creek, and, you know, there's some, you know, it's great view and everything like that, and you really would like to build a house there. You know, this would be perfect for you to build a house. Well, you know, that desire in itself is not, you know, is not evil or wrong, um, and, you know, I mean, one, just to have that desire, it's not evil or wrong. It's not necessarily envy. Um, of course, you know, if, if you desire to steal it, you know, like somehow, or to squat on it, then, you know, then there, there's your problem. Um, so I think we have to keep that in mind. Is We should, and part of that is, I think, is a healthy respect for the blessings that God has given to others, that we acknowledge the blessings that God has done for others. Um, or also um, respect the desire that's planted on our heart. Um, but we do, we pursue it by just means. Again, envy is um, defined for us. Envy refers to the sadness at the sight of another's goods and the immoderate desire to acquire it, the, acquire them for them for oneself, even unjustly. So it's when we're saddened um, by this. Um, first of all, it has to be an immoderate desire, um, but it's also this sort of sadness at the blessings of others. the catechism talks about the desires of the spirit and I think the key point here is 
the precept of detachment, which the Catechism talks about in 3544, that we really want to be detached from riches. This is absolutely, it's obligatory, the Catechism says, for our entrance into heaven. That, I mean, you know, in some way, I mean, you know, I mean, I, you know, I don't know if there's a case, but, you know, I mean, certainly you have to be detached to die, you know. I mean, I'm sure you're going to be detached after you die, um, but, you know, you really have to let go. I want, you know, you, one wonders, you know, I think, um, you know, I've seen many, many people die in my life. And it is a long, it can be a long, slow process because the hum, human body is so strong and resilient and wants to keep going. And these involuntary reflexes keep going even after the brain is finished. Um, one, I, you know, one wonders, you know, if we just, if, if it, you know, part of the effect of the fall is to just hold on. And, um, but the, this key of det detachment, that's really the virtue I think, and the state of being that is um, kind of um, the antidote to envy and to this commandment, really, I think, to the seventh commandment with it. Um, desire for true happiness frees man from his immoderate attachment to the goods of this world so that he can find his fulfillment in the vision of beatitude of God. So we live this detachment because we find our happiness in God. Okay, now we're going to flip to the um, ninth commandment. Um, the eighth commandment, excuse me. The eighth commandment tells us you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Um, this is, that is, of course, again, Exodus 20:16, Deuteronomy 5:20. Um, the Lord, you know, again, because he is the fullness of revelation, Jesus Christ is the fullness of revelation, he fully reveals what the Ten Commandments mean and imply because he is the divine legislator. Christ teaches on the, on the mountain, on the Sermon on the Mount, It was said to men of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. The Eighth Commandment, we're told, forbids misrepresenting the truth in our relations with others. And it flows from this obligation that all of us have received to bear witness to God to bear witness to God. Um, you know, we talk about, in baptism, the universal call to holiness, which the Second Vatican Council kind of emphasized, this, that everyone is called to be holy. We're also reminded that the, the Second Vatican Council says that by our baptism, we are also have a universal call to mission, that each of us is called to witness to God. So, this commandment, um, you know, if we talk about the commandments as living in Christ and our new way of living, this one really, um, the Eighth Commandment, really protects our dignity of our ability to witness. The dignity of our words, of the truth that has been revealed to us. 
We're told that God is the source of all truth, and of course, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of divine revelation. He's the fullness of truth in the flesh, the word. Um, to follow Jesus is to live in the spirit of truth whom the Father sends in his name. To his disciples, Jesus teaches the unconditional love of truth. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Matthew chapter 5, verse 37. That's another kind of point of the Lord's revelation on this commandment is let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Even more so, so, you know, we just talked about divine revelation, so the Old Testament, that God has revealed his truth through the law, through the prophets, that Jesus Christ is the truth, he is the word, and that um, we who follow him are committed to live in truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. But also, even um, even more than just revelation, is it's our human nature. To, we are inclined to the truth. That part of being human, one of our distinctive aspects is our reason, our ability to know the truth, to comprehend the truth, and to communicate the truth, to bear witness to it. Moreover, society requires a certain truthfulness. Because human beings are communal, we, you know, truthfulness is, you know, if you can't believe each other's words, then you can't really have a community. Um, and then also, as disciples, we are called to witness. And so there has to be an integrity to our witness. So to bear witness to the truth, um, is the first thing. So Christ says that his mission is to come to bear witness to the truth. The duty of Christians is to take part in the life of the church, impels them to act as witnesses of the gospel. This is paragraph 2472. To act as witnesses of the gospel and of the obligations that flow from it. This witness is a transmission of the faith in words and deeds. Witnesses an act of justice that establishes the truth or makes it known. You know, so there's this there's this quote from St. Francis of Assisi, which is actually c completely wrong and incorrect, and you can't even find it in his writings. It's just made up by some crazy person. You know, they probably made a meme and sent it out that Francis said, preach always, but use words when necessary. That it's all made up. That's a lie. Um, the, in fact, you know, there's there's some reference where, I mean, what? Well, one, um, the only reference you can find in the writings of the early Franciscans is from Saint Anthony, and Anthony says that our primary witness is by our words, you know. But anyway, I the the point is is that all of us are called to witness to the gospel by words and by deeds. Now, the witness, those two functions of word and deeds are connected and necessary because, the, you know, yes, the words, the deeds point to the words and the validity of the words. So this is an interesting point that we, ref, we reflect on is the connection between evangelization and, and the works of charity. And the works of charity communicate by deed the love that we have, but 
If we don't explicate the sor- what is the source of that love by proclamation, then our charity really is, you know, we're just a social organization. So if we're actually going to be a Christian or a Catholic charitable work, proclamation has to be part of it. Um, because every, you know, the, everyone can, anyone can, you know, can pass out things, you know, to people or write checks to people. Um, what we also have to connect it to is the reason why we do this, the source. And, and the source is not just that we want to see you fed and full. It's that we want to see you saved in eternal life. In, in eternal life. Um, again, you know, it goes back to that false liberation that um, the first commandment forbids. You know, we, you know, that liberation, if we just are liberating people from their hunger or from their thirst or from their homelessness or from their nakedness without in without pointing them to the one who actually liberates them in eternal life, then we're, it's a basically a practical atheism is, is what Catholic charity can be can devolve into is a practical atheism if we're if we're not proclaiming the gospel that's a that's um, an important point that needed to be made. So also in this witness is martyrdom, we say. So what are the offenses against this commandment? Well, first of all, false witness and perjury. It's interesting that that's the first one that, you know, on on the list. Um, because, you know, we've made this oath, you know, by... You know, and of course, this is condemned by you know the improper use of the Lord's name too. So, you know, it's a double whammy: perjury and false witness. Um, but then another one is what we call respect for reputation of others. It forbids every attitude and word likely to cause them unjust injury. So we're guilty of this in three ways. We can be guilty of this in three ways. First of all, rash judgment. When we assume as true without sufficient foundation the moral fault of a neighbor. So we talk about rash judgment often in the mind, but this is really a vocalized judgment. So, you know, one might think that this is true. I have seen this or, you know, I have witness this or whatever Um, we assume this to be true but without perhaps the full context second detraction which is disclosing another's faults and failings to a person who did not know them so these are true these are true things that are bad about another person that we reveal to someone who didn't know them now, if someone already knew them, then, you know, then it's, it's not detraction, at least in the technical sense. Um, and then there's calumny, which is remarks contrary to the truth. It's when, it's when you say something that's not true about someone that makes them look bad. And so, the, you know, a lot of people get these confused. So 
rash judgment, I assume something to be true without sufficient, or I say that something's true without sufficient foundation. And again, these are about moral faults, you know. Now, the fact that someone may dye their hair is not a moral fault, you know. Um, whether that person is a philanderer, you know, then that, that's about their moral fault. So we have to really, in examining our consciences on these, because people can get highly scrupulous about these kind of points. One has to look at what what fault or error have you presumed or, you know, told others about, you know? Is it really a moral error, a moral fault, or is it, you know... I mean, I presume, like, if someone's breath stinks, you know, and you tell someone that someone's breath stink, well, you know, as bad as a bad breath is, halitosis, it's not really a moral fault, Um now, you know, is that light matter? You know, it depends. I mean, so the de detraction is about things um, which people are true. Detraction is about things that are true, but that people didn't know about. And it's interesting, without objectively valid reason, the catechism says. So, you know, we may have to. So, for instance, if you know, your daughter is, or someone's daughter is going to date this guy and the guy's a real loser. It might, you know, it might be nice to tell their parents that this guy's a real loser, you know? Um, so there is an, ob there's an objective valid reason for, or for instance, in a job interview, although there are legal, there, there are various legal requirements where you can't reveal certain things about certain people, you know, in a in a reference, if someone, you know, I mean, if if you need to communicate that someone did something highly inappropriate in their job, then, I mean, now that's I'm not a lawyer, so don't don't take my advice on that. But from a moral perspective, that seems to be an object. You know, if someone um, stole a million dollars from your business, and someone asks you, what do you think about me hiring this person to be my you know, bookkeeper, then, you know, then I think, you know, there's an objective reason to disclose that, you know. Um, the, uh, and then, you know, like also sometimes an advice. Now, what we want to do is not have too many advisors, you know, um, but, you know, we may need to talk to someone about a, a particular situation. Then calumny is just stuff that's made up. Either you, either you may, made up or someone else made up. Um, the catechism then goes on to say, to avoid rash judgments, everyone should be careful to interpret, insofar as possible, his neighbor's thoughts, words, and deeds in a favorable way. Um, Detraction and calumny destroy the reputation and honor of one's neighbor. This is a natural right, and some people would connect this to the fifth commandment of murder, like to to kill someone's honor and reputation. It's akin to murder. Um, the um, and of course, therefore, there's you know all of these things. We're going to hear about this later, but. 
um, reparation needs to be done. If we have, you know, like maybe we made a rash judgment and we told someone about it. Well, we could say, well, you know, in further thought or, you know, like I discovered this later, let me correct this. So, um, Um, also, um, flattery, adulation, or complacence that encourages and confirms another in malicious acts and perverse conduct. So, if if I give someone flattery or adulation or compla- you know, or am just kind of quiet when they've done something wrong, this can be a problem. Um, and in fact. Um, it says adulation is a venial sin when it only seeks to be agreeable to avoid evil, to meet a need, or to obtain legitimate advances, advantages. So sometimes, um, sometimes you know, we we can be kind of quiet or say you know you know not not give not kind of call someone out on something in these sort of situations. There is a connection to cooperation sometimes with agility. You know, if we're like, yeah, really good job killing that person. You know, like that's kind of that's kind of formal cooperation in the act. You know, or it, at least it's a form of cooperation with the act. Um, and they, we should note that the catechism uses flattery, adulation in different, in, in kind of precise ways. So, boasting or bragging is an offense. Also, disparaging someone by malici- maliciously caricaturing them or some behavior. And then we get to um, what we more most traditionally think of this commandment, which is the lie. Um, and it, we're, it's defined, there's two definitions of lie in the catechism. The first is in 2483. A lie is the most direct offense against the truth. Oh, wait, in 2482. A lie consists in speaking a falsehood with the intention of deceiving. Later, in 2484, it's defined again as to speak or act against the truth in order to lead someone into error. So, on the... Why is there two definitions? Well, I think one emphasizes um, the intention, while the other one um, more of the object or the the act itself. Um, To lie is to speak or act against the truth in order to lead someone into error. The gravity of a lie depends, and so this is really one of the sections where parvity of matter is talked about. So the gravity of a lie depends upon the nature of the truth it distorts, the circumstances, the intentions of the one who lies, and the harm suffered by its victim. Um, Again, uh, just to hit this, every offense committed against justice and truth entails duty of reparation, even if its author has been forgiven. Then there's a respect for the truth. This, First of all, it deals with the right to communication, but also um, 
the right to know communication. And so there's a part on secrecy. There are three types of secrecy. The, the highest, which is um, inviolable, is the sacrament of reconciliation that the priest is bound by. The second are what we call professional secrets. So those things, you know, like, so for instance, the doctor-patient privilege or the lawyer-client privilege, um, or, you know, maybe um, death con secrets that politicians might be bound to, you know, in security rooms, or soldiers when it comes to an order or a strategy. Those can only be violated. They can be violated, but only... Um, for grave and proportionate reason. Um, and then finally, every, uh, the kind of general, what we call private lies, or private secrets. Um, those that you know someone might say to us. Now sometimes there's a distinction made between implied and explicit. So if someone explicitly says, don't tell anyone this, um, it's a little bit graver to violate that than if, if, if it's like, you know, if someone said something, but it's kind of the nature of it is sort of secretive, so you, you really wouldn't tell someone else. That's kind of what we call an implied secret. Um, it talks about the use of social communication to do so responsibly, um, to serve the truth. And then it also talks about art and beauty and, and sort of the need to, um, to use art to uphold um, truth and beauty. Uh, we'll end with a prayer in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. This is listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio. You've been listening to Catechesis from the Cathedral with Father Adam Streitenberger. If you'd like to listen to this episode again, download it, or share it with a friend, please visit stgabrielradio.com, go to our audio archives, and look for Catechesis from the Cathedral. Thanks so much for joining us today. God bless, and have a great day.